One Sunday, with the eagle eye that could spot a tarnished spangle on a showgirl at 50 paces, his glance happened to fall on a chipped plate. Later, after the last guest had departed, he informed Mother that Berkeley Crest was going to rack and ruin. That was Edie Magnus reading a few lines from The Ziegfeld's Girl by Patricia Ziegfeld. You'll hear more in a moment, but first, you're listening to Yesteryear, Stories from Home, a series that features first-hand reminiscences of the joys, challenges, and adventures of living in a small village on the Hudson, just up the river from New York City. I'm Melanie Hoops, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our show. The Ziegfeld's Girl, Confessions of an Abnormally Happy Childhood, features the jaunty wit of Patty Ziegfeld, who recalls her 1920s childhood at Berkeley Crest Estate in Hastings-on-Hudson, New York. Patty was the only child of Billy Burke, best known for her role as Glinda the Good Witch in MGM's iconic film The Wizard of Oz, and Florence Ziegfeld, impresario of the world-renowned Ziegfeld Follies. Here to offer context is Natalie Berry, president of the Hastings Historical Society, which this year is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Natalie? Thank you, Melanie. I'm thrilled to be a part of the second installment of Yesteryear, Stories from Home. Billy Burke and Florence Ziegfeld were two of our village's most famous residents, and the account of their time at their estate in Hastings is endlessly fascinating to our residents and to those interested in Broadway and Hollywood history, the Ziegfeld Follies, or the Roaring Twenties in general. At first, Flo wasn't thrilled about living in the country, but soon he took Berkeley Crest on as a project with the same attention to detail and inattention to cost that he poured into creating his follies. The couple entertained lavishly and often with some famous frequent guests. These included George Gershwin, Richard Rogers, Jerome Kern, Fanny Bryce, and Will Rogers. One year, for the birthday of songwriter Irving Berlin, frog's legs were obtained by shipping in 200 two-pound frogs from California. Animals were a particular favorite of Flo's. They became a kind of talisman for him, and he always had a live animal included in his New York productions. When the Broadway run was over, those animals often ended up at his Hastings estate. Over time, Berkeley Crest became the home of a motley and rotating assortment of farmyard and exotic creatures, including an unruly trio of buffalo, Egyptian asses, and even a baby elephant. As much as the animals caused some concern, for the most part, the residents of the village were in turns fascinated and charmed by this glamorous couple. Hastings during this time was primarily a middle-class community, with over 50% of its population foreign-born and working in factories on the waterfront. Berkeley Crest had a staff of 17 to maintain the estate, many of them hired from the local community. The cost of all this extravagance was immense, estimated at $10,000 a month. According to Billy, Ziegfeld earned millions, but he never saved a half penny. So when the stock market crashed in October of 1929, their fortune was wiped out and there were debts to be paid. After Flo's death in 1932, their estate was put up for sale. All told, the Ziegfeld's time at Berkeley Crest lasted only a short while. But it was a memorable 15 years in the village, one that has become part of the local lore. I hope you enjoy Patricia's childhood recollections and that they give you a glimpse of what it was like to live in this Xanadu on Hudson. Thanks, Natalie. 
And now, Edie Magnus reading The Ziegfeld's Girl, Confessions of an Abnormally Happy Childhood by Patricia Ziegfeld. I was born on October 23, 1916, in the Hotel Ansonia, an imposing stone pile and the Beaux-Arts style on Upper Broadway in Manhattan. The Ansonia was huge, like Grand Central Station, with enormous high-ceilinged rooms. Daddy had maintained an apartment there since long before his marriage. It was no accident that I was born in a hotel. From the moment she suspected I was on the way, my mother was determined to give birth to me anywhere but in a hospital. She considered all hospitals dangerously unsanitary. She considered the Ansonia pretty unsanitary, too, but at least she could get in there and scrub, scrape, scour, and generally make antiseptic the Ziegfeld apartment. Billy Burke, the newspapers reported delicately, in private life Mrs. Florence Ziegfeld Jr., has retired temporarily from her busy stage and screen life to await an interesting event. The interesting event was me. Daddy was nearly 17 years older than Mother. He was laconic, slow to anger, ice-water calm in the midst of chaos. Mother was volatile, gay, a chatterbox with an explosive, although short-lived, temper. Yet they had much in common. The theater was their greatest bond. They loved it, worked hard at their jobs, reveled in the rewards the theater poured back upon them. They adored luxurious surroundings, rich food, extravagant service. They admired and encouraged the peacock in each other. Neither of them was capable of practicing thrift. They were both city-bred, but incurably romantic about the country. After their marriage in April 1914, Mother and Daddy moved into Mother's house and reveled in the blissful domesticity, driving back to Hastings every night and spending the long Saturday night to Monday evening theatrical weekend there. Grandma Burke was installed in an 11-room house on the grounds. Berkeley Crest was technically a country estate, but it had some of the characteristics of a zoo and some of a medieval fief. Its rambling 24 acres embraced a jumble of farmland, flower gardens, dog runs, duck ponds, Japanese tea houses, tennis courts, a buffalo paddock, a replica of George Washington's home, Mount Vernon, and a swimming pool. The swimming pool was an example of the schizophrenic quality of the place. The pool evolved from a basically simple desire on Daddy's part to have some place to swim. Daddy believed in healthful exercise for the entire family, and what better exercise than a daily plunge and fast swim from one end of the pool to the other? He decided to build the pool on a sunny, open site at the end of a double path of flowering cherry trees, and he summoned Joseph Urban from New York to design it. Mr. Urban had never designed a swimming pool before, but he had created plenty of breathtaking folly sets, so Daddy figured he ought to be able to knock out a simple swimming pool in Westchester County. At first, Mr. Urban was all business-like practicality. Then, abruptly, the Viennese-born designer flung functionality to the wind and gave way to his artistic soul. In the very center of the pool, he placed a large statue of a cherub holding aloft a fish that sprouted water from its mouth in a long, arching stream. 
The effect of the statue was to ruin any possibility of getting invigorating exercise in the pool. Unless you swam very slowly and cautiously, with head averted, you crashed into the cherub or got smacked in the face with the jet of water from the fish's mouth. Matters were further complicated when Daddy put a canoe into the pool, too, so we could all practice paddling for camp. You could take only a couple of strokes with the paddle before plowing into the statue. While Mr. Urban was designing a swimming pool that nobody could swim in, Mother busied herself making the tennis court unfit for anybody to play tennis on. She planted climbing roses all over the wired fences surrounding the court. As a result, it was painful to run up against them and chase the ball. The tennis players grumbled. But Grandma Burke thought the whole effect of the roses was so pretty that she had a Japanese tea house built next to the court, where she could sit and watch the players lacerate themselves on the thorns. Grandma Burke had an inexplicable mania for Japanese tea houses. Wherever there was a little clearing or white space in the maze of shady woodland walks around the edges of the estate, Grandma would put up a tea house. If there happened to be any water nearby, a duck pond or just a marshy place among the trees, she would put up a Japanese bridge, too. Only a limited portion of Berkeley Crest was devoted to cultivated lawn. A gravel driveway lined with blue spruce trees swept up from the iron gates at the entrance to the front of the house, where there was a turnaround with a flagpole in its center. This was just about the extent of formal landscaping on the estate. The rest was a world of small spaces, each devoted to some different pursuit, and the whole thing offering endless delights to a little girl growing up. Best of all was my playhouse. When Mother originally bought the Kirkham estate for herself and Grandma, there was a playhouse already on it. It was a small, one-room affair, and it made Daddy nervous. He would circle it restlessly, surveying it with a disapproving eye. It offended his sensibilities. It was small, cramped, and dingy. And Daddy liked things to be large, spacious, and beautiful. What Daddy had in mind was something along the lines of the Petit Trianon, only airier. Mount Vernon, Daddy said. Why didn't I think of it before? Mount Vernon, which had started out as part of a Marion Davies movie set, arrived on a huge warehouse truck. Bernie MacDonald, the man who built most of Daddy's sets, came along to Hastings with it, and under his direction, it became the front of the most wonderful playhouse imaginable. There was a story-and-a-half living room, a dining room, a library, a bedroom, a porch, and a covered passageway to the kitchen. The kitchen had a stove on it, which you could really cook in, a sink and china cupboards. The entire house was furnished with child-sized furniture, including a canopied four-poster bed. Outside the house, Martha Washington geraniums bloomed along the Chippendale railing that ran across the top of the building. Flowers bloomed everywhere at Berkeley Crest. There were meadows full of jonquils and narcissus and a field of white violets. There were cutting gardens and formal gardens, and a rose garden encircled by a high box hedge. Wisteria covered the outside walls of the main house. 
The glassed-in sun parlor was always full of big wooden flower boxes brought in from the greenhouse and filled with whatever was in season. Inside the house, great vases of fresh flowers stood about in every room. The flowers were changed nearly every day. Daddy, perfectionist in everything, couldn't bear to see a flower that looked as though it even contemplated drooping. There were 22 rooms in the main house, and the furnishings were constantly being replaced or repainted or refinished. Daddy had three telephones in his bedroom, one of them a direct line to the theater. Mother had a phone in her room, and there was a phone booth under the stairs. During the week, there was only the family and staff to feed, but Sundays always brought an enormous crowd of guests. Friends drove up the long bluestone driveway all afternoon. Neighbors drifted in and out. Guests from New York were delivered from the Hastings station by local taxi. People wandered around the lawns and gardens or pitched horseshoes or played croquet or tried a wary game of tennis on the rose-bedecked court. Inside the house, there was apt to be a table of bridge in one room and a new movie put on by a man who came up every Saturday and Sunday to run them from a tin-lined projection room. The maids passed hot roast beef sandwiches and cookies and silver dishes of bonbons and salted nuts. At dinner time, the guests would drift into the dining room, everyone relaxed and thoroughly at home. While Daddy carved the roast, Mother, who was an expert carver herself, would keep up a running fire of instructions from her end of the table. Daddy usually paid no attention and went on imperturbably slicing away. Daddy loved to see the dining room filled with his friends. He produced those Sunday dinners the way he produced his follies, and he couldn't bear a false note in either. One Sunday, with the eagle eye that could spot a tarnished spangle on a showgirl at 50 paces, his glance happened to fall on a chipped plate. Later, after the last guest had departed, he informed Mother that Berkeley Crest was going to rack and ruin. Mother said she had noticed some of the china needed replacing. I'll take care of it, Daddy said. The dining room was big enough to seat 20, but it wasn't big enough to hold the gold dinner service of the Russian Imperial Court, which is what Daddy bought for $38,000 to replace the chipped plate. Mother took one look at the thousand-piece set and made him return it. Berkeley Crest was more than just a house and pool and tennis courts and woodland walks, though. It was a 20th-century peaceable kingdom, where a lion and a lamb lay down together, along with the buffalo, the elephant, the Egyptian ass, and mother's 15 dogs. It always seemed perfectly natural to have buffaloes and a baby elephant for pets, as well as bunny rabbits. The Berkeley Crest animals were mainly out-of-work actors or circus performers. The fighting hawks, for instance, had appeared in Rio Rita, the chimpanzee had been featured in a Follies dance number, and the lion cubs were the offspring of a Barnum and Bailey wild animal act. The two buffaloes had been fired from the cast of a play. Daddy bought them on the spot and had them trucked to Hastings. When the wind was right, the bellowing from the paddock could be heard clear down to the village, and somebody told Daddy that a question had been raised in the town meeting about zoning provisions. Eventually, he located a zoo in Pennsylvania, willing to take the buffaloes off of our hands. When the truck carrying the buffaloes away drove through the gates, 
a small crowd of villagers who had gathered to watch gave a faint cheer. The baby elephant came next. Daddy gave Herman to me as a sixth birthday present. He came complete with an elephant boy named Henry. Herman weighed nearly 300 pounds, so there was no question of being able to romp with him or take him for walks. The gardeners loathed him for constantly trampling their plants and flowers. Worst of all, he never seemed to get enough to eat. He would range through the ground like an enormous vacuum cleaner, sucking up any debris in his path. Cigarette butts and Unita biscuits were his favorite tidbits, but in a pinch, he would eat anything. Half a dozen times a day, he would turn up at the kitchen door and stick his trunk inside for a handout from Delia, who was not enchanted. There were ducks and pheasants and quail at Berkeley Crest, and also a flock of homing pigeons. There were canaries, parakeets, a cockatoo, and a macaw. Our birds lived in cages in the solarium, where mother's two parrots were also kept. There was also a herd of deer and a flock of lambs, but the dogs outnumbered all our other pets. The kennels never housed fewer than 15, most of them steely hams, mother's favorite breed. Whenever one of the animals died, mother and daddy and I mourned them almost as if they'd been human. There was a pet cemetery on the sunny slope of meadow behind my playhouse. It was kept beautifully clipped and trimmed. Even today, I can close my eyes and be back at Berkeley Crest on one of those beautiful spring mornings. Daddy has just finished his breakfast and topped it off with a tall glass of papaya juice, seeds and all. He kisses me goodbye and walks across the lawn to the copper beech tree, where he grabs hold of a limb and chins himself up six times. Then he disappears into the back of the Rolls-Royce, and the car rolls down the driveway, headed for New York and the New Amsterdam Theater. It's true in a way that you can't go home again, although it's always been kind of fun for me to go home and see what's happened to the old place, and by golly, a lot has happened. People here in California say to me when I say I'm going home, Don't you live here? Isn't this your home? I say, No, I was born in New York, and I lived in Hastings-on-the-Hudson, and that is my home. I think where you are born is basically your home. I think my strongest memory of home was the color and beauty of it and the comfort. I loved the comfort of it. It was a very comfortable place. The house was comfortable the grounds were comfortable, and the ambience of the place was comfortable. There wasn't any strain or stress. It was a haven for Daddy and Mother when things didn't go quite right. It was a very serene place. It was a beautiful property. From the third floor, you could see a bit of the Hudson River. It was a good life. I liked it. Just listen to the Ziegfeld's Girl, Confessions of an Abnormally Happy Childhood, read by Edie Magnus. Yesteryear, Stories from Home, is produced by Tim Donahue, Eduardo Ballerini, and me, Melanie Hoops. Sound design by Josh Govier, with help from Natalie Berry, the Hastings-on-Hudson Public Library, and the Hastings Historical Society. Special thanks to Joanna Reisman. From all of us to all of you, thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more stories from the place that you call home.